What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts. I love the Olympics. I loved them as a kid, and I still remember some of the huge personalities that came out of those games. I remember Dick Fosbury. In 1968, he invented this new way of doing the high jump called the Fosbury flop, where he'd land on his back. And I recently read he's almost 70 years old, which, quite frankly, kind of freaks me out. But I remember Peggy Fleming, Olga Corbett. So many great athletes. And of course, as a little girl, I was most interested in gymnastics and figure skating. So imagine my delight when I got to NBC in the early 90s and started working on the Today Show, and I was told that I got to cover the Olympics in Barcelona. My daughter was a little baby. She and my husband came over and stayed for about a week, and it was so much fun. And that was the beginning of my Olympic stents. I covered eight Olympics in all. And one of the great things about covering the games is I got to see all these incredible cities. Athens, I got to go to, as I mentioned, Barcelona, or as they say, Barcelona. (laughs) And I also really love Sydney because the people in Australia are so friendly and so nice. And they'd all gather around the Today Show set and they'd scream, Ozzy, 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 oi, oi, oi. Covering the Olympics was really a positive experience for me because it was a happy thing to cover. And these athletes had worked so, so hard, and this was their moment to shine. These are some of my Olympic memories, sort of a smattering of them through the years. But we also asked you to tell us your best Olympic memory and why. And here's what you had to say. Michelle Ducer Farrell. I'm actually um, an Olympic alumni, member of the 1984 women's gymnastics team, and um, of course, one of my most indelible memories of my childhood was watching Nadia score the first perfect 10, which just celebrated its 40th anniversary of it happening. Another handstand. Look at that! Right to the handstand. My name is Susan Chapman. I live in Kissimmee, Florida. 1972, I think 17-year-old Olga Corbett did a couple of moves that are still repeated today that changed the the course of the sport forever. And the excitement of uh, Gordon Maddox was the announcer, I think, with uh, Chris Schenkel. Watch this. Back Sully right to the other bar. Has that been done before by a girl? Never. Not by any human that I know of. My name is Oscar from Phoenix, Arizona. I wanted to share one of my favorite Olympic memories. We always see the triumphs, but the heartbreak of Derek Redman in the 1992 Barcelona Games, who was unable to finish his 400-meter race. Redman's pulled a muscle. He's out of a shocking luck. He was joined by his father. Definitely stands out as one of the most emotional, human, and touching moments of the Games. One of the best things about covering the Olympics for me was having the opportunity to co-host the opening ceremony with Bob Costas. I did that a few times, and we had so much fun. 
Now, Bob has covered more than a dozen Olympic Games. He started out as the late-night host in 1988, and he's his name has really become synonymous with the Olympics. So he kind of makes me look like a piker covering only eight. I think Bob is the living example of the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. So I wanted to talk to him about that, but also learn how he got interested in covering sports. So Bob Costas is with us. Hey, Bob, we're so excited. Hi, Katie. Let's talk about your career. How did you get started? Well, when I was a kid, like many kids of my generation and every generation, I was fascinated by sports. And as tried as it sounds, it was a connection between me and my dad and the other kids that I grew up with. But maybe unlike most of them, I was also as interested in the broadcasters as I was in the games themselves and the athletes. To me, the games weren't the same without the soundtrack. And I grew up in New York in the late 50s and in the 60s when many of the greatest announcers of all time were plying their trade in New York. And these guys weren't just competent announcers. And I say guys because for the most part, although there are more women now, there were virtually no women sports broadcasters at that time. Uh, those broadcasters didn't just do a competent job. They did a lyrical job in many cases. There was almost a melody to a good broadcast. And the best of them had a literate touch. Without being pretentious, they gave you the notion, the understanding, that they were men of the world, at least to some extent, that they had interest beyond the game, and they could weave some of those observations in to give the broadcast a little more texture than ball one, strike two, or there's a first down or a touchdown. And their mastery of that craft was fascinating to me, and that's when the notion of being a broadcaster first took hold, and that's what happened to me. I was going to say, you you became a master storyteller and a sports fanatic, because I think there are very few people in broadcasting, in my opinion, who are as sort of seamless, fluent, and eloquent as you are in almost every situation. And I'm assuming that you weren't at Syracuse even studying communications or really sports and news. I'm sure you studied a lot of other things that were helpful to you in your career. What were those things that contributed to your ability to be a critical thinker and to express yourself so well? Well, you know, I've always been a reader, and I've always been someone who was interested in pop culture in the biggest sense. Um, I think there's a part of me that's probably an old soul, but I was interested in what was going on at present, but I was also interested in history in the most uh, classic sense, but also the history of pop culture. And a lot of that just seeped in, and I retained uh, a good portion of it. And then as I watched and listened to people on radio and television, I always admired those who had a certain mastery of language, the Red Barbers and the Vin Scullys, who would never miss a beat on what was happening in the game, but at the same time would fill in all the little brush strokes along with the broad strokes. You'd know what the weather was at the ball game or what the atmosphere was, or you'd find out some interesting story about a ball player's hometown or something that happened the night before while they were out to dinner in this city or that. And that, that to me, made it a, a fuller picture. It wasn't just the primary colors. It, it had a, a texture to it. Bob, could you tell us a little bit more about um, your relationship with your parents? I remember reading that 
sports in general and and baseball in particular was a way for you to connect with your dad? Yeah, my father was a colorful character. He was very smart. He was charismatic. He was uh, people of a an older generation will understand this reference. He was a Runyon-esque kind of character, but he was also a compulsive gambler, uh, which led to some exciting and interesting and humorous circumstances, but also to some heartache because very often, no joke, the mortgage would be riding or our ability to pay it would be riding on whether... Were you stressed out by that, Bob? Was I stressed out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the whole the whole family was stressed out. And very often, my mom, who was the sweetest woman you could ever hope to meet, and my younger sister, two years younger than me, they would leave and go to the neighbor's house or go to grandma's house. But I would stay and watch the games with my dad. Uh, and there was a lot of tension riding. He made a pretty good living for a guy in the 1960s. But, you know, we lived in a house that he bought for $19,000 on the GI Bill. And it was not unusual at all for him to have three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 worth of action going on a weekend. So if those bets went well, terrific. If those bets went less well, then we couldn't pay the mortgage. And I remember going with him, and this is kind of how we bonded. I remember going with him once to a donut shop in Brooklyn. It was around 1966, and he was going to meet the bookie. So here we are sitting at the counter, and a guy who looks like he was sent in by Central Casting. He's got a, a fedora on. He's wearing a, a pinky ring. He, he looks, looks, he looks like Nathan Detroit. Nathan Detroit would be charitable. He looks like a guy who, who might be mob-connected. But <laughs> on the other hand, Nathan Detroit might have been, too. But he, was, he wasn't as handsome as Marlon Brando, let's put it that way. But nonetheless, I remember him saying, hey, that your boy? I was, yeah, he goes, nice boy. He says, you drink milk? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm 14 years old. No, you schmuck. I drink tequila. Yes, I drink milk. And the guy goes, give the kid a glass of milk and a donut. And then while all this stuff is unfolding, he slides a paper bag across the counter to my father. And after a few little pleasantries, we're back out in the car and under a streetlight in Brooklyn in 1966, my father counts out $14,000 in $100 bills that he had just collected from the bookie because he had been on a winning streak. Now, in that moment, despite all the anxiety and heartache that came at other times because of his gambling, at that moment, I'm thinking my father is one of the coolest guys in the world. The other dads on the block just mow the lawn on Saturday. This guy, this guy's living a life of danger and adventure. And in moments like that, what would happen is he took the money, and he went and bought a Ford Mustang, which, as you remember, was a really cool car. I, I remember going with him, and he does the usual things. You know, he's lifting the hood. He's kicking the tires. And I remember distinctly the salesman said, is it a little out of your league? And my father reached into his pocket, and he had this giant wad of bills. He goes, no, I'm going to bleep and buy it cash if I bleep and decide to bleep and buy it. Um, so, <laughs> and he didn't so, say bleep and, so to be clear. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, no, there was no censor involved. <laughs> so, Did yeah. that mess up your attitude toward money? I mean, I would think that growing up with a father like that and having that much stress, did it make you a compulsive saver? Did it affect your attitudes? I'm, I'm not a thrifty guy. Um, I, I think that if you're lucky enough to have some money, 
you use it to enhance your own life and, and the lives of, of others. I'm not that much for material possessions, but I'm big on experiences. So if you can, you can help someone have an enjoyable time or if you can do something with your family or people you care about, uh, then I'm not looking to die with the highest possible net worth. You know, we're lucky enough to, to not have to worry about that, which is quite a contrast to the way I grew up. Yeah. But what it did affect was my attitudes toward gambling. Um, in the past, when I've covered some boxing, which I haven't done that much, but a lot of the boxing when I was at HBO was either in Las Vegas or in Atlantic City. I could walk to a casino a hundred times and never stop. I'm just walking right through and going to my room. Um, and I, I never gambled as, as an adult um, because I saw what it did to my dad. But at, at the same time, um, it connected me to him. And when I was young, really young, like nine, ten years old, he would give me the keys to the car, not to drive it around the block because I could barely see over the steering wheel, but because you could get radio reception in the car better than in the house. And at that time, there's no internet, there's no cable TV, there's no way to follow his bets on non-New York teams except to hope that through the crackle and static, maybe you could pick up faraway radio broadcasts. So when I was 10 years old, I knew where all the games were. And if the atmospheric conditions were just right, and if I calibrated the dial like a safe cracker and hit just the right spot, maybe I could pick up these out-of-town broadcasts. And those were my first reporter's jobs, because I'd go back in the house, and I would not only tell him what the score was, but I'd embellish it. I'd say, well, Clemente singled to right, then Stargell doubled, Clemente scored, Stargell was at second, Skinner singled, he scored, 2 nothing Pirates, bottom of the fourth. And he'd pat me on the head. Of course, I'd only do that if I knew his bet was on the Pirates. If he bet against the Pirates, and this was bad news, I'd go in and tell him that I couldn't get it, that I couldn't find it, because I didn't want to put up with what his possible reaction would be to the fact that he was losing $1,000. Bob, you were talking about fighting, and not that long ago, you and I actually went to the funeral of Muhammad Ali. And I know he's somebody you deeply admired. Uh, I'm just interested Mm -hmm. in... And sort of what that experience was like for you, because it was a real treat for me to see this very interesting conglomeration of people, including Don King, who really had you figured for someone else altogether. Tell that story, because it was very funny. (laughs) Don King comes walking in. He's in his 80s now. He's a slightly diminished version of Don King, but he's still unmistakably Don King with the outrageous hair and the the outfits, and he's waving his American flags, and he's greeting everyone. Lennox Lewis, former heavyweight champion of the world, Matt Lauer, host of the Today Show, blah, blah, and he gets to me, and you're standing right next to me, and he goes, Michael J. Fox. (laughs) (laughs) He wanted his picture with you. (laughs) And and you said very, very gently, Don. No, I said Mr. King. Mr. King. Mr. King is Bob Costas, and, and he, without missing a beat, in a millisecond, pivots and says, Bob Costas, greatest commentator in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Don knows no shame. <laughs> that was quite an event, and I'm just curious, now that some time has passed, um, what do you remember most about that day, other than being with me and having lunch together? <laughs> Sure, that was the highlight. Of course, that's at the top of the list. Um, well, when when you've got a range of people that goes from former heavyweight champions of the world and Jim Brown, who's a much respected figure, 
and Billy Crystal and President Clinton, but also includes Chubby Checker, who, you know, I, I've known Chubby Checker for 40 years uh, and remember being eight or nine years old when the twist was a big hit. And I guess that Chubby and Muhammad were close. I mean, the number of people that eventually came into Muhammad Ali's orbit was, uh, was vast. And the kind of arc of his life, he wasn't any one thing. Was he this angry and to many Americans frightening and polarizing figure and to other Americans deeply inspiring and courageous figure? Yes, he was. And was he ultimately a figure of reconciliation and unity and brotherhood? Yes, he was, which didn't negate what he was earlier in his life. His life just had an extraordinary arc to it. And when you think of this guy who was once not only arguably the greatest athlete in the world, certainly the greatest boxer in the world, but the most physically beautiful athlete, the most fascinating and charismatic to watch, the most outspoken, humorous, and entertaining. And then he ends his life with virtually no mobility when once he was the very definition of athletic grace and no ability to verbally express himself when once he was the most voluble of, of athletes. There was something very poignant about that. And yet with the help of his wife, Lonnie, he still managed to be a public figure in a way that had some dignity to it. The whole arc of his life is unlike that of, of any other athlete. I remember, Bob, doing a piece with Michael J. Fox about Muhammad Ali, and it, that was very moving to see them join forces. And I think he got a lot of courage mm -hmm. from Michael J. Fox because I think there was a period of time where he was embarrassed to appear in public, and he didn't want people to see at, you know, that he had become diminished from this disease. And I think all the things that he's done for Parkinson's research and all the inspiration he's given people who are dealing with the disease, my father died of Parkinson's. And so I became very interested in sort of the science. I think he sort of died as he lived. I mean, he was incredibly committed to this cause and I think in very, very inspiring to so many people. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most... There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind. So find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished 
roast beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Thanks again to our sponsors. Let's get back to the interview. Let's talk about the Olympics, Bob. You've been the primetime host for every Olympics on NBC since 1992. You were the late night host of the 1988 Games. Do you ever get sick of the Olympics? Be honest. No. Um, no, I don't get sick of them. No matter who someday succeeds me, that person, if they're a thinking person, and I assume they will be, is not going to agree with every aspect of it. It's just too vast. There are parts of it that are going to appeal to you, parts of it where maybe if you were making the decision, you might emphasize this rather than that. But in the big picture, being the host is not only an honor, it's an important responsibility because so many hundreds, if not thousands of people work really hard to produce these pieces and to put everything in place. You owe it not just to yourself and to the audience, but to all your colleagues to do the best possible job. But are there times when I say to myself, you know what? this particular thing isn't my cup of tea, or if I was running it, I'd do it this way, of course. But 90% of the time, you know, I'm, I'm well aware that no one, no one else uh, has a better position in broadcasting during those three weeks than I do. And you do such a great job. And I, I think that people probably have no idea, Bob, of how much preparation is involved in this, particularly when it comes to you. I mean, you are just immersed in all things Olympics. I mean, you know everything about every athlete, every event. It's ridiculous. I mean, are you just reading Olympic material from the time you wake up till the time you go to bed? And no offense, but that sounds kind of boring. Your poor wife. Well, <laughs> here's, here's what happens before every Olympics. You're doing preparation, at least in a general way, in the months leading up to it. For example, with Brazil, I'm aware on an ongoing basis of all the issues and obstacles that they face and the controversies. But about a month before the opening ceremony, you go into a lockdown mode and you take all of the research that uh, the outstanding research department has prepared and you start pouring through it and you close everything else off. But one thing that's really become important for me over the years is I learned fairly early on what you don't need to know. You don't have to know uh, everything about or even the name of every uh, hurdler from Bolivia or platform diver from Peru. That's what the people at the venues are for. And if those athletes become a story, the research department is so good. And now with everything digitized, you can get it so quickly that as long as you're someone who's able to take a briefing quickly, and you know this from your days uh, on the Today Show or as the network news anchor, some stuff can be scripted and planned and other stuff just comes up. And you have to take it, take a quick look at it, and use your experience to make some sense of it and get it out there quickly. Yeah. Over time, you develop those muscles and you're able to do it. You have to be a quick study and incredibly fast on your feet. You know, I, I want to talk about Rio because having covered so many Olympics and many of them have been fraught, uh, I guess, at the onset. And usually these cities rise to the occasion. But gosh, I feel like Rio is under more pressure than 
any other city that that I've watched through, you know, the mm-hmm. Olympics that I've been aware of or at least involved in. Rio faces such an array of issues, the pollution, the political turmoil, the financial crisis, the Zika virus, the the venues and the infrastructure, and also security. When you say to yourself, look, if they don't have enough money to pay the police and security forces, when they've got to ask the federal government for nearly a billion dollars in additional support, can we be sure that everything will be as fully buttoned up as it should be? And in addition to the kind of terrorism that people worry about at any big international event, um, Rio has a problem with just general crime, street crime. you got to be very careful if you visit what areas you venture into and what you stay away from. Are you worried about the athletes? Are, are you concerned, A, about the security of the people covering the games? And are you worried about the athletes as well, given, gosh, we're, we seem to be in such a volatile, uh, scary mm-hmm. time all around the world, not just in the United States? Yeah, what they have told the athletes is, if you stay in Olympic housing, then we'll have it secured. If you choose to stay elsewhere, then you're on your own. You've got to get your own security. And I don't want to be Debbie Downer here, but it's worth noting that the athletes in sports where the Olympics are not the pinnacle. You know, it's great to play on the Olympic basketball team, but Steph Curry or LeBron James would rather win the NBA title than win a gold medal. Or Serena Williams would rather win Wimbledon than win an Olympic gold medal. So a great number of these basketball players, golfers, tennis players have already announced their intention to skip these Olympics. And most of them have very rationally said, look, even if the risk is low, it's not a risk that I'm willing to take. Now, if you're a pole vaulter with a chance to win a gold medal and you've trained for this for four years and this is your one big turn on the international stage, then that risk is more than worth it. But those who have other options, I'm not surprised that they've decided to to take a pass this time. No real masters for pole vaulters, is there? No. I mean, with the Olympics, it's at best once every four years, and maybe for some of these competitors, it's once in a lifetime. And most Americans don't pay that much attention to Olympic sports outside the context of the Olympics. So these competitors step out of the shadows and into the biggest spotlight for just that couple of weeks or in the case of some events, just a few minutes or a few seconds. I think probably the biggest story coming out of the Olympics in the United States is the concern about Zika. And, you know, the Brazilian health minister says that the odds of getting it are very low because it's happening during the South American winter. Uh, And yet, Mm -hmm. you have a number of athletes who are deciding to skip it, as you know better than we do, largely because of this disease. Um, you have uh, you have a number of uh, men who are participating who say that they're going to preserve their sperm in advance of going. Mm-hmm. Bob, are you doing that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm at a stage of life where it's not a factor. <laughs> how how big of a crisis do you think Zika represents? Well, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. It does seem credible to me that it being winter near the equator. Uh, that the risk would be diminished, the mosquito population is diminished, and that if you take uh, proper precautions, the chance of it is relatively low. But no one can guarantee that there's no chance. 
And you can't blame someone for not wanting to roll the dice if they're a female athlete. Most of these athletes are obviously people in the prime of their lives. Uh, they're sexually active. Many of them are apt to become pregnant or considering it, starting a family, whatever it may be. Or as male athletes, uh, that could affect their, their partners or potential partners. So uh, for them to be concerned about it makes, makes perfect sense to me. When you look at sort of the highlights and lowlights of your Olympic experiences, and I'm sure there are so many, and you must write a book about this at some point, but what were some of the moments that are seared in your memory that, you know, you, you still think about today? Well, we talked about Muhammad Ali a moment ago when he lit the cauldron as the final torchbearer in 96 in Atlanta. That was such a stunning moment because virtually no one knew, including me and Dick Enberg on the opening ceremony. We might have guessed it, but no one told us uh, that it was going to be Ali, and they had practiced at one time at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'd say fewer than 20 people actually knew that it would be Muhammad Ali, and the way they staged it, he stepped out of the shadows and into that spotlight when Janet Evans, who had the torch before him, handed it to him. And there was a moment or two of silence while it kind of sank in to the crowd watching, and then there were almost audible gasps, followed by this deafening applause. It was surprising. It was touching. It was exciting because of his presence. But it was also, even though he lived another 20 years after that, I think it, that was the moment of reconciliation for him on, on the world stage. There were so many aspects to that, that when I'm asked, what's my most memorable Olympic moment, even though I could rattle off another 20, that's the one that's at the top. Were there any other athletes that just inspired or moved you? Yeah, and sometimes they're big winners, and sometimes they're relative footnotes. When Kathy Freeman lit the torch and then also won her event at the Sydney Olympics because of her Aboriginal background, there was a story there that was meaningful and inspiring uh, to Australians and which could be told and understood by the rest of the world and her performance. She won resoundingly, emphatically. But then you have other moments, and you and I have covered them, but we could list dozens of them, but I'll just give you one. In 92 in Barcelona, there was a marathoner from Mongolia named Piambu Tool. And Piambu Tool had zero chance to win a medal. Um, he came there with the idea of just representing his country and finishing. On top of it all, he was legally blind. The marathon finishes in the main Olympic stadium, and it's always the last day of the Olympics, and the closing ceremony takes place in the Olympic stadium, too. The Ambu Tool came staggering toward the Olympic stadium, not minutes, but hours after what officials thought was the very last competitor had finished. It took him like seven hours to run the marathon, but he managed to finish. And when he got to the entrance of the Olympic Stadium, security at first stopped him. Like, who is this guy and what is he doing? And after it was made clear what was happening, they cleared a path for him to get to where the finish line would have been. And right in the middle of the closing ceremony with all the hoopla and pageantry, this guy came staggering across the finish line, and he had accomplished what he came there to do. And when asked about it afterwards, he said, my country didn't send me here to win a medal because I had no chance. The only thing I could do was finish. 
And if you're not touched by that, you've got to check your pulse. (laughs) You know, there are so many great stories, and one Olympics in particular was marred for you personally because of an eye infection you got. How, right. <laughs> how, how, how bummed were you when you had to sit out in 2014 because you – was it officially pink eye? What, what happened to you exactly? No, pink eye is to viral conjunctivitis what the common cold is to a really bad case of influenza. Um, so I had viral conjunctivitis. They hoped – I woke up the first day that we were going to be on the air. I felt perfectly fine when I went to bed. Woke up, looked in the mirror. My left eye was red and virtually closed. And I'm thinking, what the heck is this? So I go in and the NBC doctors take a look. And at first they thought it was some kind of bacterial infection. They give me some antibiotics. They tell me it'll be gone in like three days. But by three days, it had jumped from my left eye to my right. And now both eyes were all red and inflamed oh and God. whatnot. And they, they knew at that point that it's viral. So with something that's viral, all you can do is make the person feel more comfortable, but it just has to run its course. And the, the problem, here's how I felt. If it had been my first or second Olympics, I think I would have been crushed. But because I'd done so many Olympics, I really wasn't crushed personally, but I felt a professional responsibility to all the people who work so hard to put on an Olympics, and you're the guy carrying the ball for them. So I tried to be as professional as I could about it. And anyone who recalls it fairly knows that the only references I made to it were very brief, kind of self-deprecating, hopefully humorous remarks. I just was afraid that I was creeping out most of America. And in fact, maybe I was. But here, it became part of the story, especially in a social media age. And no matter how professional you tried to be, and no matter how self-deprecating you tried to be about it, people are going to do with it what they will. And then after five or six days, it got to the point where my eyes were so light sensitive. That's when I had to step aside because I couldn't be in the studio. So for six days, I'm in a darkened hotel room with various things over my eyes, washcloths dipped in one solution or another and taking whatever they told me to take. And by, I don't know, the sixth or seventh day, I was able to come back and kind of stumble through what remained of the Olympics. But for about two months after the Games... My eyesight was compromised. My prescription kept changing. I couldn't read the newspaper. It was really hard to call baseball games because I couldn't see out of the distance. And it was probably around June or July of 2014 before it finally stabilized. Well, we're glad that it did and that that you're all better. And you mentioned social media. And I guess they had a field day with this, which is sort of shitty when you think about how miserable (laughs) it must have been for you. But Social media can be even more than sort of shitty. And you experienced that with your remarks about Caitlyn Jenner when she got uh, the Arthur Ashe Award. Yeah, the backlash wasn't too terrible. It came from certain quarters. And then in other places, it it was like, hey, he's saying something that's just common sense. But what happened with Caitlyn Jenner was this. Dan Patrick has a radio show, which I go on from time to time. And he just says, what do you make of Caitlyn Jenner winning the Arthur Ashe Award at the ESPYs? Now, I don't think the ESPYs are really worth that much attention. They're clearly a made-for-TV event and a promotional vehicle for ESPN, and they're welcome to it. But the only two things that redeem it are the Jim Balvano Award and the Arthur Ashe Award because they stand for something. And my point was, and I took pains to make this clear, 
I support Caitlyn Jenner in her decision. I certainly hope we're moving toward a more tolerant and compassionate society where people are free to choose their own path in life and we treat them with respect and dignity. And so I'm all for it, and I recognize that it takes uh, a measure of courage to do it. But at the same time, the Arthur Ashe Award is supposed to represent people who have used their position as athletes to get beyond just those achievements. And up until that very moment, Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner had never done that. So what I said was, what they should have done would have been a brilliant stroke, would be to have Caitlyn Jenner, because of her visibility, and it is television, and you're trying to bring eyeballs to the set, why don't you have Caitlyn Jenner present the Arthur Ashe Award to Renee Richards, who had been Richard Raskin, underwent gender reassignment surgery, I think, in the 1970s, while still an active tennis player, then played as Renee Richards against whoever her contemporaries were. She's still alive and in her 80s. You could have had Caitlyn Jenner make the speech that she made, which was lovely, and at the same time, present the award to someone who actually represented what I took the Arthur Ashe Award to represent. But some people just think in a binary way. And so to some people, how you feel about Caitlyn Jenner receiving the Arthur Ashe Award is a litmus test of how you feel about the rights and dignity of transgender people. Well, if that's how some people think, um, I guess there's nothing you can do about it. Do you think if it were this year and Caitlyn Jenner was up for the award, you would feel more comfortable given that she has given voice to many transgender people and sort of, I think, increased understanding of of the whole issue to a whole generation of people? Yeah, somewhat. I think the very first thing that Caitlyn Jenner did to take a step in that direction actually was after she received the award, when she made the speech. There's no hostility in my in my take. He asked me the question. I gave him what I thought was a well-considered answer under the circumstances. But there's still, if you, if you want to parse it, there's a difference between the experiences of Caitlyn Jenner, who had a $5 million reality series waiting for her, and a well-thought-out kind of rollout of this cover of Vanity Fair, if I'm not mistaken, book, reality show, interview with Diane Sawyer. I'm not criticizing any of this, but this is hardly typical of the experiences and the obstacles that a transgender person is likely to encounter in 2015 or going forward. Bob, before we wrap up, I have to ask you about the other great competition dominating the uh, media uh, at this point, which is, of course, the presidential campaign. Do you know mm-hmm. Donald Trump? And, and what do you make of, of his role in this uh, extravaganza? I have known Donald Trump, not well, but been acquainted with him since the 1980s. He's always had um, some relationship to sports. He owned a team in uh, the old USFL, which posed a challenge briefly to the NFL. So I've encountered him at charity events and whatnot. And I must say, that he was always extremely friendly and and nice to me. Uh, we never talk politics. We talk sports and television. I have not crossed paths with him probably in, in the last three years or so. What do you think about his candidacy and sort of what it, it has symbolized, I think, or what it has told us about the state of our country? Well, I think 
it comes about because of a confluence of events. Um, there's some similarity with Bernie Sanders' candidacy in that uh, at the root of it, the gut reaction is disgust or impatience with politics and government and business as usual. And that's understandable. But then there's also the aspect of a celebrity culture and left and right wing echo chambers on cable television. We live in a post factual universe where anything, even if it doesn't check out, that supports your gut feeling, you'll find a place that will echo that and it will reverberate. And it doesn't just apply to Donald Trump. It's, hey, if I agree with it, if I like him or her, I don't want to hear anything that differs from that. And anything that supports my viewpoint, it's true. I don't have to check it out. It's, it's amazing. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, um, senator, intellectual, long gone, but famously once said, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. But these days you are. We live in a post-factual world where ad hominem attacks and baseless assertions, no matter where they come from, pass for insight and pass for legitimate arguments. And I don't think on balance that that can be good for the country. I'm curious, as somebody who consumes media and, of course, understands media as much as you do, what's your take? Uh, was he given too much airtime uh, while the other candidates weren't because it was basically good for the bottom line? Well, to some extent, that has to be true. He, he moves the needle. News or what passes for news is a business just the same as any other television program is. Um, and except for a few people trying to hold the line and, and uphold standards, um, it's not going in the direction that, that you and I uh, grew up approving of and aspiring to. Well, on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to hell in a handbasket. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Bob, it's always great to talk to you. It's always so wonderful to hear your insights, and you're quite a raconteur, by the way. Thank you. Let's, let's see how much trouble you and I can get in over this one. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Bob, I, I hope I get to see you soon. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Brian. So as you can see, Bob can talk about everything and anything, not just about sports. And that's why I love having conversations with him, because I'm always dazzled by his eloquence. Blech. He's going to think that's really weird for me to say, but it's true, Bob. I'm sorry. I can't wait to hear what he says about Rio, because it's been plagued by some significant problems. You have to feel sorry for the city in a way, because they're dealing with Zika, the economy, crime, and apparently the Olympic Village itself is having some problems. So I hope everything works itself out by the time they say, let the games begin. By the way, I just made an appearance on this really fun parenting show called The Longest Shortest Time. I love the title because I feel like it is the longest shortest time having daughters who are 25 and 20 and having no idea how that happened. But you can go listen for a little peek into my personal life. I talk about what my mom did when she found me making out in a guy's basement when I was 16 years old. Mortifying. And how I'm dealing with uh, my impending <coughs> 60th birthday. So you can find The Longest Shortest Time on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We want to thank Greta Cohn and the Right Reverend John Delore for producing the show. Thanks to Mark Phillips for our terrific theme music. David Herman mixed this episode. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. That's what helps other listeners find the show. And we'll talk to you next time. When my baby smiles at me, I go to Rio de Janeiro. Okay. um. Greta's going to find a way to use that, by the way. I do have a good voice for radio, I think. You do have a good voice (laughs) for radio. Maybe a face for radio, too. (laughs) I have a voice for print. (laughs) No, that's not true. (laughs) That's funny. This is Julie Rieger author of The Ghost Photographer and co-host of Insider's Guide to the Other Side. And I'm Brenda Villa. I may not have written a book, but I'm in Julie's book. And you are the most gifted psychic on the planet. (laughs) Come on. Listen to Insider's Guide to the Other Side on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.